name is Peter McMillan, the Chief Executive Officer at NT Shelter. I'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this episode from the lands of the Larrakia people here in Darwin and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to any other First Nations people who may be watching or listening to this podcast, either in Australia or overseas. Welcome. I'm really excited by today's guests. Rebecca Olkers is the Chief Executive Officer of the Brisbane Housing Company, one of the largest community housing providers in Queensland, with over 1,700 homes developed and under management. Rebecca has over 19 years experience in the community and affordable housing sector. Having previously held executive roles with Brisbane Housing Company in business development and as Chief Operations Officer, Rebecca has a deep understanding of the company and a strong vision for its strategic growth and service enhancement. Rebecca is committed to ensuring that Brisbane Housing Company's affordable housing provides not only safe and secure homes for tenants, but also supports tenants to achieve increased wellbeing and inclusion. During her career, Rebecca has led several high profile projects, including the establishment of the Gold Coast Housing Company, of which she was the inaugural CEO. More recently, in an Australian first for affordable housing funding, Rebecca was responsible for the creation of Gladstone Affordable Housing, securing initial contributions of almost $20 million from three Gladstone LNG proponents. I'm really interested in hearing more about that as we talk through this discussion. Rebecca is the Deputy Chair of the National Community Housing Industry Association, a board member of UDIA Queensland, a former board member of Queensland Shelter, a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors and recipient of the 2018 UDIA Women in Leadership Award. A passionate advocate for the sector, Rebecca has presented at national, state and local housing forums on a range of affordable housing issues. As Brisbane Housing Company continues to navigate its way through the COVID-19 health crisis, which hopefully is pretty much nearing an end, Rebecca will continue to lead Brisbane Housing Company into a new era of evolution and innovation with their ambitious growth plans. As the scale of need for affordable housing continues to increase in Queensland, the Brisbane Housing Company team are focused on achieving lasting change and delivering better outcomes for the many Australians who still do not have a safe, affordable place to call home. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the couch, Rebecca Olkers. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. And before we get into the nitty gritty of your work at Brisbane Housing Company, I was really keen to hear a bit more about your time over in um, France in 2013, where you were at the um, European Institute of Business Administration. I understand it's a fairly competitive placement to get into that. And, um, and you were looking at uh, how you help entrepreneurs grow their social ventures and maximise their impact. How important, I guess, was that program to the thinking and the framework that you can now bring to the Brisbane Housing Company? Well, look, I think it was really influential, actually. I did a short course. So it was just a short course with um, INSEAD, and it was called the Social Entrepreneurship Program. And it was one of these kind of, you know, when you do something in your career and it's just really a bit life-changing, it felt like that for me. So I'd been at BHC for a period of time um, since 2007. So I guess I'd, I'd been there for five years or so. And I was really, really interested in all sorts of different models in bringing different kind of sources of funding in and in, in different ways of, of achieving scale in social and affordable housing. And so the CEO at the time at BHC, David Kant, um, I said to him, oh, you know, I'm not sure if I want to do like a master's or a short course or what I might want to do. And he said, look, I wouldn't recommend doing a master's, do a short executive course and go away and think about what it is you would like. And so I really had a look and I found this course within SEAD and it was really difficult to get into. You had to prepare, a, you know, a, um, a submission. You had to really talk up what you wanted to achieve from it, what your organisation was doing. And I was very, very fortunate to get in. But the thing that was terrific about it was that there were people from all across the world, like literally every corner of the globe, doing small um, entrepreneurial work in third world countries 
and also doing sort of larger projects in some other places and everything really quite different. Most people were actually individuals trying to make a difference in their own local community. Um, and so what I was doing in terms of being in an affordable housing company was slightly different, but all of our ideas and all of our, um, I suppose, reason for being there was to try to do things differently and to try to make an improvement in the world. And so social entrepreneurship is about doing things in, a, in an entrepreneurial commercial way, but something that is going to actually have an impact locally and, and do something that is usually for underprivileged people or community groups. And so for me, it was inspiring, really inspiring. And I think it has always stood me in good stead in terms of the way I look at things, because I look at things in with a lens of, you know, what can we do? How can we overcome that? How can we look at it entrepreneurially? How can we bring in other players? How can we, how can we make that happen rather than, oh, well, that's the way it's been done and that's the way we'll just have to keep on doing it. So I think that really did imbue me with that sense of um, let's get out and do things, which I, I loved. I'm, yeah, I'm really curious about that. Sounds like a terrific experience, as you said, and I can imagine, you know, people trying to get microfinance for projects in third world countries ranging through to bigger scale development would be inspiring and just really rewarding here in uh, working with such energised people. It must have been a fantastic oh, yeah. experience. Often, I think in business, we talk about, we often make, a, I guess, a dichotomy between management and leadership, but there is this third element I'm curious about, entrepreneurship as well. And I'm just thinking, what are your thoughts around the role that um, community housing sector CEOs, and I guess also CEOs in the housing and homelessness system, um, what, what, should, what should their role as entrepreneurs be to you? Well, I think it is, <clears throat> I think it's very important that we look outside of the box, that we actually have a vision for something that is, as I said before, not just accepting that this is the way that things are gonna go. I think it is important to do things in a new kind of way and to look at new partners. And often that really is what entrepreneurship is. It's putting, it's not just taking the usual equation, it's finding a different equation and different partnerships and making something work that previously hasn't kind of worked. And I absolutely feel like we in the social and community housing sector, um, you know, we've got a big challenge in front of us. We've got a deficit of, you know, many, many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of properties that we need to be able to produce. Because at the end of the day, you know, we've got thousands and thousands of people waiting on public housing wait lists. We've got hundreds of thousands of people living in housing stress. And we live in a very rich country. You know, we live in a really rich country. We can't just accept that we're going to go with the status quo. And so as CEOs and leaders, I think it behoves us to say, well, what are we going to do that is different? What partnerships are we going to create that are different? What avenues are we going to look at and explore that are actually going to get us to achieving that goal? And by that, I mean, I want to not have 116,000 people homeless every night. I don't want to have, you know, 700,000 people in Australia living in housing stress. And I don't want to have, you know, 200 odd thousand people waiting on public housing wait lists. Everyone in Australia should have a roof over their heads. 100. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm just, just as an extension of this, I'm interested in your thoughts as to whether there's a tendency still across the sector to maybe look to government for the solutions to bridge the gap around housing and homelessness and whether we need to reframe that in terms of constantly waiting for policy programs or um, funding for innovation that to come from government. I mean, government has a role, but do you think maybe we can do more as leaders to drive that conversation and the partnerships you refer to? Yep. Well, look, I, I think the thing is, government does play a role. It definitely plays a role and should play a role. But I think what is problematic is when we, as leaders, say, well, government hasn't done X, Y and Z, so we just can't do it. There are other ways of looking at things and there are other partnerships. And so, for instance, institutional investment into social and affordable housing, 
is really important and we can get into talking about that a little bit later if you would like to um, but that's something that I feel really passionately about um, but I definitely think that you know we can't just say oh well our hands are tied here government hasn't provided it so we can't do it there do have to be other ways having said that I I think government does play a big role and I also think that governments have choices in front of them you know they choose where to spend their money they choose whether to spend their money on defense or on housing they choose you know and they make decisions every day of the week and that's local government state government federal government um, I don't always think that those choices or those priorities are right because I think that there should be more put into housing and housing programs and more to the point into the development of more social and affordable housing actually just developing more and having more supplied um, but totally agree that we just can't throw our hands in the air and say oh well government hasn't done it therefore it can't be done absolutely and rebecca before you got into housing in the housing sector with the uh, queensland affordable housing coalition back in around 2002 i think um, you were working, you did some uh, interesting things around disability support services and also with Wesley Hospital around um, quality uh, assurance, customer care, business improvement, all those uh, important areas. What was it for you that uh, piqued your interest in housing and got you over to the housing sector? Well, look, I, I did a commerce degree and an arts degree when I was back at uni. And I was about three quarters of the way through my commerce degree when I realised that most people going out of a commerce degree went into accountancy as their, their career after that. And I, and I suddenly I kind of went, oh, my gosh, that's not going to be me. That I, that I would not be good at that. Um, I actually, my first job out of uni, I managed a disability support organisation. And it was an organisation that was run by a committee of people with disabilities. And it was really like the precursor to the NDIS, I think even though it was way back in the early 90s. Um, but that group of people were fiercely advocating for having autonomy. I was, they were very keen to get me as the manager because I didn't have a social work degree. I hadn't any preconceived ideas and I was actually very helpful to them in terms of writing to the government, getting them support dollars, and then they were in charge of those support dollars. I mean, I would help them find the support workers, et cetera. But, and I loved that job, absolutely loved it. But I think what I really realised was no matter how much support funding somebody had, if they didn't have a home and a home with the access that they needed, uh, it still was very difficult. And a lot of those people still ended up living with their family members, their parents, et cetera, and they didn't fully have autonomy. So it was always in the back of my mind, actually housing is just so critically important. The role I went into at the Wesley Hospital from that kind of segued from that real uh, customer, I suppose I'd been working in a very client-centred environment in QLA, Quality Lifestyle Alliance, and then I moved into the hospital setting and I guess it was still customer-focused around the um, patients in the hospital, but a different kind of focus. And then I was very much looking at quality within that um, hospital environment. And that was an incredibly interesting thing too, looking at ways to make the hospital more efficient, make the systems and the quality, quality systems work better in the hospital. But um, when I'd worked in that role for quite some time, the whole education centre I was in was made redundant. And I, I then had this kind of crossroads where I'd gone for two different, two different roles. I'd gone for a managerial role with um, the Queensland Community Housing Coalition, just as a manager. And also this other role that was exactly the same as what I'd just been in in St Andrews Hospital in Brisbane. And when I got the when I had these two options, I didn't get the manager's role at QL at the um, Queensland Community Housing Coalition. But <clears throat> the guy that was in charge of that, his name was Mike Myers. He rang me back and he said, "Look, I'd like to offer you a role as a sector development coordinator." And I remember saying. I don't even know what the sector is. What, like, what's the sector? <laughs> and why do you want to make me yeah. sector development coordinator? And he just said, look, I just think you'd be really good. And he said, you've had that disability experience. And anyway, so I guess in the back of my mind, I was thinking, yep, housing is important and I'm going to give this a go. So rather than 
going down a track that I would have been easily able to do more in quality, you know, control within another hospital, I took up this role. And I feel as though, honestly, that was me finding the career love of my life because um, finding housing and actually doing work in housing has ended up just being such a, a joy and a passion of mine because it really is the bedrock of people's lives. If you've got a roof over your head, um, it just means that you can do so many more things. You can get a job, you can look at education, you can stabilise your life, you can get your kids into a school and stay there. Um, so I think I was very lucky. It was very serendipitous. I don't think a lot of people come out of uni going, yep, I want to work in a housing association. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll talk a lot more about, I guess, the culture at Brisbane Housing Company over the, over the coming uh, half an hour. Uh, but also, I guess, to, to work for an organisation for that amount of time, there must be some real opportunities there and some really great leadership and, and people you've worked with uh, oh, over the years. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Rebecca, I'd just like to ask your question about, uh, obviously, we've got a change of government and national, national scene. We've got a, a commitment to having a national housing homelessness plan. We've got the, um, the, the Housing Australia Future Fund. We've got an accord. We've got a whole range of interesting things coming, a lot more language around building more social and affordable housing, which is strongly supported across the sector um, without saying that it's enough or casting any judgment around that. Um, it's a start and at least we've got conversations happening around that. I guess I'm interested in your thoughts around renters because in the Northern Territory, 50% of us up here are renters. It's the kind of place where a lot of people, professionals and otherwise come up here for a couple of years, uh, maybe committing for a year or two or three years. They're not necessarily committing to living here permanently. So rents are, rentals are, are important part of the way the landscape's set up. It struck me as unusual, I guess, at this stage, neither of the major parties seems to have a, a policy position that recognises the short-term pain that renters are going through. And while it's fantastic that we're going to be building more social and affordable housing and we've got an aspirational target, I guess that there's going to be a lead time through which more and more people are going to fall through the cracks into at risk or actually experiencing homelessness. NRAS is coming off as well. What, what do you think it is that there's a, like a reticence to talk about policy for renters and how the minister, I guess, pretty was pretty quick to say well, that's not in, in the government's um, uh, priority to review the rate of Commonwealth rent assistance and so forth. What do you think it is that renters don't seem to have been addressed in uh, policy when it comes to housing at a national level? Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, the initiatives that they are bringing in, in terms of the Housing Australia Future Fund and the building of, you know, very many more social and affordable units, they are rental stock. So that is predominantly rental stock. And so when the government is talking about that, it's not talking about housing affordability per se, or, you know, housing developments that might have an affordable price point that people can buy into. They are talking about rental stock, but, I, I would say that it's still a little bit, um, I mean, the initiatives that have been brought in are more around social and affordable, less around just actually increasing the number of dwellings that are going to be built right across Australia. Having said that, this accord is talking about having a million dwellings built. Um, and whilst that sounds like a lot, <clears throat> typically within a five-year period, there would be around 985,000 built in any case. So what the government is saying is we still want to do that, but we want to do it a little bit more than we would typically be doing. A lot of those properties will be rental properties, but they also may be purchase of properties as well. Um, I don't think that the government... So that in itself is a positive thing, but it's not as positive as, you know, it's not another additional million dwellings, for instance. And then the 30,000 additional that we're talking about, say, through the Housing Australia Future Fund, they will definitely be rental dwellings, but either social or affordable. And when we say social, you know, that's probably typically at the 25 or 30% of income and affordable is probably at the 74.9% of market rent. Um, but there do need to also be other, I think, incentives just to get more rental properties on the ground full stop. 
not just social and affordable, um, but more rental properties. And I'm on the board of the UDIA, and that's most certainly something that the UDIA pushes for, that the Property Council pushes for, the ability just to have more supply in the market, because with more supply, um, you know, the, the demand is, is going to be able to be met more readily, and hopefully the prices will come down. I personally still think that the emphasis on having real investment in social and affordable housing, where you have a community housing organisation managing those properties, is incredibly important for those lower income groups. Um, because if you're in a lower income group and you're getting Commonwealth rent assistance and you're trying to rent in the private market, so many people are still paying, you know, up to say 70% of their income on their housing and housing related costs. And that's just not acceptable. It's fine if you, you know, if you're getting CRA and you are in a, in a good job and it's, it's not costing you that much, but so many people that we see are actually just not able to rent in the private market whatsoever. Um, and as you say, the government hasn't had a lot to say about an increase in CRA or even more in terms of an increase just to general pensions and benefits, which would have been extremely helpful to see. But you're, in, in terms of the, um, you're right, in terms of supply of uh, additional 30,000, upwards of 30,000 new social affordable homes, they will be prominently for renters and it's, it's very welcome news. It will make a difference for those families across Australia. I just wanted to check um, with you, back in 2020, you presented at CEDAR, that's Australia's leading conference really for economic development. We were talking about um, why, I guess, the group there, economists, planners, urban developers, maybe institutional investors as well, why they should be prioritising social and affordable housing. What would get them interested in, in this conversation? Uh, you know, what, what, as an investment class, for example, what, what was your message to that conference? Um. Well, that was a while ago, but I'm assuming that it, it's the same message that I talk about right now, and that is that um, social and affordable housing is an asset class that is very, very similar to infrastructure assets. So it is a long-term investment. It has very low volatility. Uh, it's very safe and stable. So whilst the income streams are low, um, it's not high-yielding. The income streams are low, but it is very, very predictable. So it's like an infrastructure style investment. Um, and when you have superannuation funds, they're looking to deploy their capital in a range of different ways. Some of those um, ways that they might like to deploy their, their capital are in high yielding stocks. And then they've also got like an absolute, you know, so they do it across a whole heap of different um, areas, but they definitely need to have some that are just in those low yielding long-term assets that are secure. So what I have always said, and what I'm definitely saying now is that social housing and affordable housing needs to be seen as social infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be seen in the same way as some of those other infrastructure asset classes i.e. it has a low yield, but there's very, very low, low vacancy rates, high demand, it's, it's backed in the people who are actually renting in social and affordable housing are often on benefits, it's backed by Commonwealth rent assistance. Um, and there's very, very little in the way of vacancy rates. So as, a, as an actual asset class, it's got a lot of positives going for it. And what we need to have institutional investors see is that it's very similar in its characteristics to any other infrastructure project. And so what we have with our institutional investors is that very often they deploy their money and they will deploy it into infrastructure investments, maybe here in Australia or maybe overseas. But we have never, ever had social housing seen as an asset class that these institutional investors can invest in here in Australia. Ironically, they do invest in these kinds of things overseas because there are the programs to make it work. And I guess the point that I would make and that I have made for a long time is that by itself, like social housing by itself, the yields on social housing are too low 
for an institutional investor to probably want to invest in just off their own bat because they've got fiduciary duties to their, their shareholders and to the, the people who put their money in, to the superannuants. So it's not enough in itself, but if you have a modest government top-up that actually increases that and gives you a slightly higher yield, it absolutely makes it work. And what that does is unlocks the institutional money and allows it to have um, a risk-adjusted return into an asset class that really helps society. So instead of that money going overseas and perhaps investing in social and affordable housing programs that government backs overseas, if we've got something like that in Australia, that money can stay in Australia and superannuation funds can be deployed into social and affordable housing projects here in Australia. So in terms of the returns, you mentioned that the income or the yield is low on social affordable housing on its own. It needs that contribution from government. Um, just two questions from that. What sort of contribution um, would be required from government? Is it between that cash or land or some other form of um, injection into the equation? I guess the other question is, is other returns significant in a high inflation or higher inflation environment that is still to be a, a margin of safety over, over, over inflation going forward? Basically, look, the, the returns on social and affordable housing are really quite slim. Um, and I think it depends on the location. It depends on how much the land costs. It depends on how much the development is. Every time BHC, so the organisation that I work for is Brisbane Housing Company, every time we do a development, and typically our developments range from our smallest is 10 units of accommodation in one and our largest would be around 100. Um, whenever we do a development, we look at the feasibility of it, we look at how much it's all going to cost and we look at the rents that are coming in. But the, the returns are low. So, I mean, and they differ. They differ depending. But like, let's say they're somewhere between 1% and 3% yield on that particular development. So those, those figures are just too little. They're too little. So let's say an institutional investor would invest in something if it were at an 8% yield. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily the rate, but let's say that they would. And they said, okay, well, this is not a property investment. It's an infrastructure investment. 8% might be the, the amount. It could be higher than that, could be lower than that. But let's say it was eight and you were getting an underlying yield of 3%. Then if you can fund that gap between the 3% and the 8%, um, by getting a government top up on a yearly basis, that's a smaller amount than government needs to put in in order to fund that entire development than if they were to stump up the cash initially and give you a cash injection to build the whole thing. They don't have to find, government doesn't have to find the money up front. You could get that money through, say, a mix of institutional investment and, say, bank finance or NIFIC finance. Um, and what government, what the government's role would be is on a yearly basis paying an availability payment to actually top that up. And I guess the magic in this, it's not magic, but the, the thing that is positive about it is that that amount the government would need to put in is a lot more, it's a shallower subsidy. So when you're putting direct um, money in for a capital purchase or a capital build, government is probably putting in, let's say they're putting in 90%, 95% of the total capital cost of a building. And they're putting it all in on day one. And it's probably coming, it's probably a balance sheet item for the government. That's a lot to ask of government. If, however, instead of that, all they're needing to do is to pay a smaller amount as a top up on a yearly basis for a period of time. And it might be for 10 years, it might be for 20 years, depending on what the building is. That's less money that government has to put out and they don't have to find it up front. And I guess that the, um, the equation that we do is we look at what the net present value is of that investment for government. And essentially government pays less by doing that top up model and it actually catalyzes and brings in other sources of funds. So I think what we've got to be looking at is how do we make government money stretch as far as it possibly can. And that's, that's, I think, what is important because, as I said before, we've got 
the scale of this problem is not small. It's huge. It's really huge. And, you know, there's a whole heap of things. You know, what kind of Australia do we want to live in? Do we want to have people homeless? No. Do we want to have people living in housing stress? No. Do we want to have people able to have a roof over their heads and stabilise their lives? Yes, we absolutely do. So how do we get the funding that we need to make this happen and to really redress the balance? Because at the moment we've got a real deficit. Um, and so I feel that this is a way that we can do it. There's billions of dollars, um, you know, under the management of these superannuation funds. And an important thing to say is that these superannuation funds can't do it out of the love of their hearts. They've got a fiduciary duty to um, the people who put the money in, yep. to their members. They've got to make a proper risk-adjusted return. It can't be philanthropic. So I think that's the really important thing. If they can still get their risk-adjusted return, it's a win-win-win. It's a yeah. win for super funds, it's a win for the members, but it's also a win for the Australian society mm. because we get to house people. Absolutely. Look, it sounds like a, a very sensible uh, model. And I guess just like uh, superannuation funds, uh, you know, investing in domestic or overseas infrastructure, utilities and utilities or roads or airports or whatever the case might be, it's a similar model, isn't it? As long as uh, the, uh, the returns are sufficient uh, to have a hedge against inflation and have a reasonable, albeit fairly boring, I guess, return on these investments, you might say, like, you're not going to get huge capital gain or, or, or growth in yield, but you're going to have like a low risk um, asset class that's available for superannuation fund managers. Sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Yep, yep, that's exactly that right. And I think a lot of the members of, of the superannuation funds are really keen on this too, because so many people are affected by this these days. And it wasn't, I mean, and look, I don't believe that we've all of a sudden got a housing crisis. We've had a housing crisis in Australia for a couple of decades, in actual fact. It's just more now that people are, more people are becoming affected, um, that we're starting to really talk about it more, which I think is terrific that, you know, there's just this general um, discourse about it. It's so important that we actually all talk about it and that it is actually a political issue for our politicians to factor in. But I think a lot of the, the people putting their money into the super funds actually would love to see super funds investing in social and affordable housing because they know people who are affected. They know it might be themselves, you know, that are affected um, by the lack of housing and the really, you know, the skyrocketing rates of the rents. But I think also most uh, people in superannuation will want their fund to be uh, sensible as they've got a fiduciary duty to, to um, discharge, as you said, and uh, investing in other people's homes that are needed as any other infrastructure they'd support that. I guess rather than take the view that we're taking their money to build other people's homes, they're really um, taking um, superannuation funds and putting them to good use to build essential infrastructure that Australia needs. Yeah, um, it's really, it's nation building. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, so was that uh, was that similar to the process to what you've done with Australian Retirement Trust and $150 million investment? Uh, I'm just curious about, just to close this off, this part of the conversation around how you get a big superannuation fund like Australian Retirement Trust to be interested in partnering with a you know a big uh, Queensland uh, housing company to, to partner on, a, on an initiative like that. Yeah. So... This has been something that we've been working on for a couple of years. So you mentioned about the CEDA presentation. I can't even remember what year that was in. 2020. 2020, okay. Well, probably even before that, um, I've been very interested in kind of cracking this nut of getting institutional investment in uh, to social and affordable housing, but not just me, like our whole board, our CFO, you know, we've all been really grappling with this for quite some time. And so... Brisbane Housing Company, Company itself, I might just give you a little bit of a background to us. We, are, we were set up in 2002 and we were always set up with the notion of us being a developer and also a housing manager. So initially in the, the setup of the company, we got $50 million from the state government, $10 million from the local government, and we, we set off to build social and affordable housing. So we've always been a housing developer. We've always had an entrepreneurial approach and a commercial approach. And now we have a balance sheet of around 375 million, 
We don't owe any debt on that. And we've done 41 developments right across Brisbane, also in Gladstone. And we've had we've provided around 2000 units of housing. So we've built 2000 units. We also actually went for a credit rating. So a couple of years ago, when we were thinking about all of this, we thought what would be a good way to, to show our credentials, our financial credentials, our entrepreneurial and commercial credentials. And we thought we'll go for a, a standard and pause credit rating. So we did that. We're the only um, housing association, I believe, in Australia that has one. And we've got a double A minus credit rating. And the reason we did that is because we were thinking at the time we want to, um, we actually would like to raise our own bond. So we were looking at the bonds issuance to be able to go into social and affordable housing. So all of those things, I suppose, are background to the fact that that we've been thinking about this for a long time and, and wanting to get a partnership to get, and to, I suppose to prove up the concept. Um, and it's hard, Peter, it's actually really difficult because we talk a language in community housing and you know, superannuation funds talk another language and how do you actually build that bridge and make the connection? And I think that we were very, very lucky. So our CFO, uh, Peter Garone and I, he's absolutely fantastic CFO, I've got to say. He and I would go and meet with a lot of different superannuation funds. We would explain about BHC. We would, we would find out information from them and we just built up the narrative over a period of time. We actually forged a relationship with Queensland Investment Corporation and I think that that was our very... Um, lucky moment, I think, in terms of meeting with the people at QIC, because they had also very much been coming at this and looking at how they might be able to get institutional investment into social and affordable. So we worked on it together. And when the Housing Investment Fund came out um, last year, in the budget last year in Queensland, uh, we, were, we were kind of together thinking, yes, we absolutely know what we can put forward as a consortium. So BHC and QIC went together as a consortium. QIC brought Australian Retirement Trust along and they've definitely done that interface between us and ART, which has been very, very useful because it is a bit of, you know, it's a bit of translation in there and it is difficult. But what I'm hopeful of, because we've been able to get this deal to the point that we have, and we're very hopeful that soon that will all be, there'll be, there'll be buildings on the ground and an exemplar of this model. I'm very hopeful that the parts of this model that have really made it work will be things that we can put into practice again, and they won't have to be you know, thought of from scratch by another group. Um, and I would love that because I think what's, problematic is how we do lots and lots and lots of little pilot projects, little pilot over here and a little pilot over there. What would be really great is to get a different model that actually works where you can work out the building blocks of that and say, here's a formula for making this work. And it can be done here in Queensland, or it can be done in the Northern Territory or in WA or anywhere. These are the ingredients that you need. These are the parties that you need. This is the role that government needs to play. And it's off you go. I kind of think of it as plug and play. That's what I would like to see. Absolutely. It'd be great to be able to scale that up, wouldn't it, uh, on, a, on a national level, hopefully. Um, but that sounds very encouraging, just having those parties uh, to the table is, is terrific. And speaking of that, I'm really intrigued about the Gladstone deal. Mentioned in the intro, you know, you've got a $20 million commitment from the LNG producers in, in that area. How, did, how do you get them to the table? It sounds like a great licence to operate corporate social responsibility story, but how do you actually get them parting with cash in a way that goes back into housing that's needed? Look, that was a really terrific project. Um, there were three LNG proponents up in Gladstone and they all had social impact management plans. They all had to provide a certain amount of money. And I can't take any credit for this. It was actually the Gladstone Regional Council that was speaking with those three and speaking with us. And I guess we put forward the idea, wouldn't it be terrific if you could 
could actually aggregate those three lots of money. They were close to $7 million each. And so aggregated came to about 20 million. Um, and we'd said, you know, look, wouldn't that be terrific? But it was really Gladstone Regional Council that spoke with the LNGs and said, actually, we would love to see this funneled into a lasting asset for Gladstone because Gladstone is very much a boom bust area. They'd had real problems in terms of um, the affordability of the rental stock for ordinary everyday people. Um, so many people have been priced out of the market uh, because of the really hyperinflated wages that some of the um, people had, had been earning on the LNG plants, et cetera. So what we were able to do up in Gladstone with that pooled money was we built a relationship with the LNGs. We built, uh, we basically had a working group. They pooled their money. Um, there were obviously a lot of legal agreements that, that underpinned that, but essentially BHC set up Gladstone Affordable Housing and we built uh, two very nice complexes up in Gladstone, which will remain as affordable housing in perpetuity. And in fact, uh, just recently with uh, quick starts through Queensland um, State Government Department of Housing, we're actually going to do some more development in Gladstone as well, adjoining one of those sites um, that we purchased at that time back when we set up the original deal. So, you know, it was great. And that partnership was great. And I always, um, I really think that there's a lot to be said for those long-term projects, you know, rather than a small injection of money here and a small injection of money there, pooling the money and saying, okay, this is going to be something that's going to be a legacy for this community. And I really feel that those social impact management plans um, ended in a legacy for Gladstone, which was terrific. It should be done more in more places. And I think the, the that's fantastic outcome really is. And uh, you know, congratulations on that amazing achievement. When when I look at the Northern Territory uh, and the potential developing the north and all of the different projects we have coming to the regions, again, there's that huge opportunity um, for for companies to be engaging on leaving that longer-term legacy. And housing is going to be needed unless we're going to have fly-in, fly-out workers. So it's absolutely. And I think too, I think it, it does take, it takes the right people and it takes people again, kind of coming back to what we were saying, thinking outside of the box. It, you know, that would never have happened if we'd all just said, oh, well, you know, that money just goes into little projects. It, it takes somebody saying, no, how about we do it differently? And then how about we actually really have some conversations with the people who can make some decisions and let's do it differently. That it hadn't been done before. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the hallmarks actually of BHC. And I'm not saying, you know, in, in lots of community housing organisations, but one thing that I think is a really great positive of BHC is that we try to do things that haven't been done before. So, you know, that, that project up in Gladstone, those kinds of things had not been done before. Um, but we, we built the relationships, we, we worked on, you know, all of the ingredients that would need to happen and we did make that happen. Again, not saying we did the lot, there were lots of other parties, but we were a catalyst in that. Um, you know, Brisbane Housing Company has also done mixed tenure developments. So I think we were one of the first to try doing mixed tenure developments where you have some social housing, some affordable and some market, and maybe some mixed use commercial in a building as well, to really try and get a good community in the building. Um, we've set up our own real estate agency, which is a profit for purpose real estate agency. And the reason we did that, it's just a pure commercial real estate agency, but every single dollar of money that comes from that comes into BHC and into our impact fund, which then goes directly out to our tenants and residents to help them with, you know, whatever it might be that they need. Um, and we've also done a retirement village, which is a for-profit retirement village too. Um, and the reason behind that, we sort of went, how can we make money? How can we as an organisation make money that can then be funneled back into social and affordable? Um, so those, those money-making ventures and those kinds of different ways of thinking are all ways of trying to bring 
to be masters of our own destiny, I guess, mm. and not be beholden on government all the time or not to the as much of an extent. Absolutely, Rebecca. And that's a great model when uh, you have those different schemes, such as the Impact Fund, to, to put services back into building more housing. It's, it's mm. terrific. One of the things that the sector delivers or can provide. I'd just like to focus a little bit more than on communities and neighbourhoods and the like. And, um, you know, in, a lot of people who's listening on from the Northern Territory will be only too well aware of, I guess, a bit of stigma around the traditional models of public housing, whether it be antisocial behaviour or visitor management. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of, I guess, a lot of fear and a lot of concern around, you know, why would we want more public housing in our street or in our neighbourhood? Um, you know, we see this also creating a lot of work for local members of parliament as well through complaints and there are a lot of, of course, there are a huge amount of great tenants out there, um, but I guess there are, there's a lot of noise, shall we say, around public housing. And no doubt a lot of that's driven by poorly designed, poorly maintained and, and tenants who aren't supported. Um, but I'm, I'm curious around your thoughts around uh, what, what, you know, in terms of the need to build more housing, how you at Brisbane Housing Company and your people would say, Rightio, how do we build an image or build a vision for what a community might look like, how it functions well? Uh, I think you've talked before about how you can have resident well-being, how you have a community that's vibrant. Um, we see a lot of these things on, um, on plans of government and strategies, but doing it in practice is something altogether different. What does, what does that mean for Brisbane Housing Company? So, well, first of all, I will just say that I think you're, you're right. There's a lot of stigma around social housing, particularly. And one of the things that we work really, really hard to do is to dispel that myth, because I do think it is an absolute myth. So we spend a lot of time and effort um, in speaking about the positives, in actually, um, we make videos, for instance, around some of the tenant stories and some of the, the fantastic outcomes that are achieved through housing people uh, in social housing and affordable housing. Now, look, it is true to say that there are, there are a lot of people in high needs categories and there are some people who are very troubled and have a lot of um, a lot of complex needs. But I think what is incredibly important is doing and building the right kinds of buildings that you can create a community within that building. Um, so for instance, BHC spends a lot of time and thought in the architecture of our buildings. Um, we build high rises predominantly. As I said before, we have done some smaller developments of say 10, but we don't build houses per se. We have done actually a couple of townhouse developments and some land subdivisions, but predominantly we build in areas that are close to your public transport and schools and amenities. And we build a high rise and we really try to work on the architecture of that high rise and we try to make it somewhere that is beautiful, somewhere that people will feel proud to live in, somewhere where people feel that sense of belonging and pride. And when you do that, and also when you put a mix of people in the building so that, you know, you might be living next to somebody who is really poor, or you might be living next to somebody who is richer, you might be living next door to somebody who's got mental health issues or you might be living next door to somebody who doesn't it, it's just a mixture of all of the people that we find in our communities in every community and I think it is amazing how beautifully some of those communities can absolutely work and so we've got an allocations team who take a lot of thought and pride in in really making sure that the people that we house in the buildings are going to that that community is going to work and the percentages in that building. So for instance, a lot of our mixed tenure buildings might be a third, a third, a third. So a third market, third affordable, third social. Um, and that works very well inside the building and it also works well for the community outside the building. And I think the more positive example examples and exemplars that you can have of that, it just means that you don't get that community opposition and you don't get that stigma because you're proving that actually it can work absolutely really beautifully. 
Um, and I'm not saying for a moment that we don't have issues with, with residents from time to time. We definitely do, as all community housing organisations would. And in fact, as many landlords just in the private market do as well, or, you know, homeowners, or it, it, you can have problematic tenancies in any tenure is, I guess, what I'm saying. Yeah. And if we were to visit some of your, or to see some of your um, developments, would you find social enterprise? Like, would you maybe have a a bakery downstairs or have a local training or a gym and those kind of amenity aspects that help build that sense of pride and community? Yep, we, we've we got a, a number of our buildings, there's mixed tenure and mixed use. And so there may be mixed use in the bottom of the building. We haven't done social enterprises in the buildings. Although having said that, it's interesting you say that because we have some plans under our HIF initiatives there's a number that we have in the pipeline that actually are looking at having a social um, enterprise working in in as part of one of those um, as part of one of the buildings. So it's an area that we would really like to get into. We have a community development team, and we're really pleased about the work that that community development team does in working with our residents in all of the different buildings. Um, they also utilise some of the impact fund monies. So we really try to do whatever we are able to, to, as you say, just engender that, that pride and that support. Rebecca, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I know you've got some projects coming through the line as well in you know, South Brisbane, Mount Gravatt, Yorongo, and, and different things coming through. Um, I would encourage people to hop online and have a look at the uh, Brisbane Housing Company website just to get a sense of the amazing things that are being done, things that don't seem to get a lot of um, attention or discussion up here in the Northern Territory. But uh, I can say that when I first came here, a lot of people would say, we'll talk about the project at the Gabba and how that really had a huge impact yeah. as well. So I'd like to thank you for sharing the couch with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to or watching Rebecca Olkers from the Brisbane Housing Company, Chief Executive Officer. If you liked our series, please make sure you hit the subscribe button or notification bell to ensure that you are alerted of new episodes as we release new content. Thank you so much for your support last year and we look forward to bringing you new podcasts shortly, right through 2023. Thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to episode two, season two of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.